Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. How are we doing this evening? Nice to see everyone. Thank you for for joining us. my name is Matt Kressel. This is Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I host the series with Ellen Datlow every third Wednesday of the month. If you aren't on our mailing list, you can sign up at kgbfantasticfiction.org. Hope you'll do that. Um, so the reading series is always free. There's never a cover charge. All that we ask is that you support the bar. You can do that by buying a drink, hard or soft. Uh, tip your bartenders. They're working hard to keep you hydrated. Um, so we did have a bookseller for a little while, uh, Greenlight Bookstore, and we still love them. They're still great. Um, so they, apparently $250 a month wasn't enough to, to make their margins. Um, so what are you going to do? But they said that if, if we have a volunteer, if someone's willing to, to go to the bookstore and pick up the books and bring it here and sell the books for us and then bring whatever's unsold back to them that they would be okay with that. So, yeah. Um, anyone want to do that? You got it? Uh, anyway. Um, so if anyone has any, like, uh, independent bookstore connections, since one, one of my thoughts was, like, if a bookstore had uh, some kind of online coupon, like for tonight, for example, we have, we have Kai and, and Simon, and, what like, what if we had a coupon that you could buy their books at a discount? They never got back. They never got back to us. So I was like, well, at least if you can't buy it here, maybe you could have some kind of coupon for the month where you can get a discount. But that's just that's my marketing brain. So if anyone has any independent bookstore connections, I know a lot of you out here are in, in that area. Um, so let us know. Um, I can't think of any other announcements. Um, so, so next month, uh, June 19th, we have Chuck Wendig and Keith DeCandido. So we hope you join us for that. Uh, July 17th, Cadwell Turnbull and Theodora Goss. August 21st, Lara Elena Donnelly and Paul Whitcover. Um, September 18th, Sarah Beth Durst and Sarah Pinsker. October 16th, Nicole Corner Stace and Barbara Krasnoff. And November 20th, David Mack and um, somebody who hasn't confirmed. Is that if I were, oh, did, did they confirm? Oh, that reader, yeah, that, the uncon- unconfirmed reader our favorite um, so yeah um, we hope you'll uh, you'll come uh, to the next few few readings and 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 join us for that um, our first reader is going to be Kaya Shante Wilson um, you know I, I always gush over uh, the readers but I, I I love Kai's work and uh, you know I, I know you guys do too and, and uh, I'm super excited to hear him read uh, Kaya Shante Wilson won the Crawford Award for Best First Novel of 2016. 
and his works have been shortlisted for the Hugo, Nebula, Shirley Jackson, Theodore Sturgeon, Locus, and World Fantasy Awards. Most of his stories are available on Tor.com. His novellas, The Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps, and A Taste of Honey may be ordered from local bookstores or online. Kaya Shante Wilson lives in New York City. Here's Kaya. So this is only the second reading that I've ever done. And the first that I did, I realized when I was going through all my works that I don't usually write for the voice. I write for that quiet voice in your head that scans when you're alone at home looking at a book. So I said the very next book I read, it has to be meant for the voice. So I did that. And that's the one I'm going to read tonight. But I didn't think about the fact that I might actually have to say these words out loud someday. <laughs> <laughs> and there are quite a few bad ones <laughs> in this story. So if you know my work, you're ready for this. <laughs> and if you don't, <laughs> this is called The Lamentation of Their Women. Otis? Hello, good morning, answered some white man. Could I please speak with, he mispronounced her last name and didn't abbreviate her first as nobody who knew her would do. Who this, she repeated, and what are you calling about? Young lady, he said, can you please tell me whether Miss Jean Lewis is there or not? Will you do that for me? His tone all flowered with white people sedity, pan fried and condescension. But she could sit here and act dumb too. Mm, it's hard to say, she'd be in and out, you know. Tell me who calling and what for and I'll go check. Apparently, the man was Mr. Blah de Blah from some city agency that cleaned out Section 8 apartments when the leaseholder dropped dead. Guess whose evil Aunt Esther had died of a heart attack last Thursday on the B-15 bus, and guess who was the last living John Louie anywhere. But how you calling me? It's almost noon to say I got till five before your dudes come throw all her stuff in a dumpster. Oh, good, exclaimed Blondie. I was worried we weren't communicating clearly. She lived up by Jamaica Bay. It'd take me two hours just to get there. Miss Jean Lewis, he said, public servants nearing retirement who never got promoted high enough not to deal with poor people anymore, black people anymore, have this tone of voice. Have you ever noticed? A certain tone. There's no requirement for you to go. This is merely a courtesy our office extends to the next of kin. The keys will be available to you until five. Blah hung up. Fuck you. She was dressed for the house, a tank top and leggings, and so went to her room for some sneakers and a hoodie. Mama was scared of Esther, said she was a witch. Both times they had went out there, Mama left her downstairs waiting in the street rather than bring her baby up to that apartment. Now she didn't believe in that black magic bullshit, of course. But she wasn't trying to go way the hell out there by herself either. Mama, though, wouldn't want no parts of Esther, dead sister of a dead man who walked out on her some 15 years ago. No, better leave Mama alone at work and call her later. She get Angel to go. They were supposed to have been broke up with each other at least till this weekend coming, but whatever. She could switch him back to man from X a couple days early. Wouldn't be the first time. I'm going to be over there in 20, she texted. She put a scarf on her head and left out. Damn it. We got the keys to his place back in her other purse. She texted again from the street and then hit the buzzer downstairs for his apartment. 
That nigga was definitely up there, parked on the couch, blazed out and playing video games. She knew it and leaned on the button steady. Yo, what? Who is this? I left mamas without the keys. Let me up. Nisha? Yeah, ain't you get my tax? Buzz me in, nigga. Uh, I was, uh, I been busy. Could you, like, uh, wait down there real fast for me, baby? Just one minute. With her thoughts on buried treasure in the far east of Brooklyn, not on boyfriends who step out the minute you turn your back, she wasn't ready for the panic fluttering that seized her heart and bowels, the icy flashes that turned sweaty hot, the anger pure and simple. Check her, dude. What would it be this time? Dude. Not too long, and Angel's piece got off the elevator and crossed the vestibule toward the outer doors. Dude looked regular black, but was obviously Dominican from the loafers and tourniquet-tight clothes. He lived, you could tell, at the gym. Titties bigger than hers, a nasty v-neck putting his whole tattooed chest out on Front Street. Mas libranos del mal. Heading out, he politely held the door so she could go in. No words, they just kept it moving. The problem was, if you like pretty boys, and she did like pretty boys, then Angel was it. You couldn't do no better. She looked okay, damn good when she got all dressed up, her hair and makeup tight, but Angel was pure Spanish butterscotch. Light skin, gray eyes, cornrow hang time to the middle of his back. He answered the door in a towel, naked and wet from a quick shower. Hickey's on him, she ain't put there. There's rules to whipping your man's ass. He tries to catch and hold your fists, dodge your knees and elbows and kicks, but accepts in his heart that every lick you land, he deserves. You don't go grabbing a knife or yanking at his hair either, as the electric fear or pain those inspire will make him lash out with blind total force, turning this rough game real in a way nobody wants. Stay in bounds, baby girl, and you can well on him till you're so tired you ain't mad no more, and his cheating bitch ass is all bruised up and crying. But fuck it, she wasn't really feeling it today. <laughs> After getting in a few solid hits, she let Angel catch her wrist. They were on the floor by then, and he hugged her in close and tight, starting up with them same old tears and kisses, same old promises and lies. Nisha, what can I do? Whatever you need, just tell me what I can do. I'll do it. <coughs> Stop laying with them hoes, with them faggots. But this was just a little sin, the one convenient to throw back in his face. She might not even give a shit anymore if she ever bothered to check. What couldn't be fixed was his big sin, the one they cried about, fucked and fought about all the time with fists and screams, but never once just said the words out loud, plain and clear. Now that a couple years had slipped by, it was obvious they were never going to say the words at all. You know what you did, she said. You know what you did. And Angel did know, and so for once shut up with all the bullshit. They lay for a while, just breathing, just embraced their exhausted resignation like a mysterious disease presenting in the exact same way as tenderness. My aunt died and left me all her shit. La Bruja? Yeah, I need you to come out to Brooklyn with me, see if there's something worth something. Oh, my caseworker coming by tomorrow. Angel felt good, smelled good. Left arm holding her, right hand stroking her shoulder, back and ass, in a loop that made everywhere he touched gain value, feel love. You know I gotta be here. We just going out there, she said, look around, and then come straight back. It ain't no all-night kind of thing. Well, let me get dressed and we'll head out. He let her go and sat up. 
Wait, she said. Hold up. She hooked her thumbs under her panties and leggings. Eat me out a little before we go? She rode him to her knees. It's got to be hard, right, when they keep asking you for what you can't give, but so good when they want exactly the thing you do best. Angel grinned. I got you, Mommy. He pulled her leggings down further, rode, him, rode her knees out wide. Let me get in there right. Somebody's suicide jumped at Grand Central, so the five train was all fucked up. They were more than three hours getting out there. Block after block of projects like a brick canyon, a little city in the city, home to thousands and thousands and not one white face, except for cops from Long Island or Staten Island, doubled up in cruisers or walking in posses. It was warm as late summer, the October rain falling hard enough to where you'd open your umbrella, but so soft you felt silly doing it. Angel walked just behind, holding it over. The $4 wingspan, too paltry to share. Drop by drop, his tight braids roughened. Anester's building was over a few blocks from the subway, not one of the city-sized ones, but big enough. The kind, you know, with the liquor store-style security booth at the entrance. Somebody watching who comes and goes. Excuse me, called the man behind the plastic. Hey, yo, braids, and you miss? Visitors got to sign in. Behind the partition, he held up a clipboard. They went over to the window and scribbled their names. Though basketball player tall, up close you could see he wasn't grown. Just some teenage dropout on his hood brand sale, YouTubing bootleg rappers. She tapped on the plastic. It should be some keys in there waiting for me, she said, so I can get into my aunt's apartment. Nobody told me nothing about that. What's that right there, she said, pointing to the desk beside the boy's elbow, where an envelope lay with her name written on it. Oh, he gave this revelation several blinks and turned back. Well, you gotta sign, show some ID then. She got out her EBT card and pressed it to the partition. Squinting, the boy leaned forward and mouthed the name off the card. Tanisha Marie John Louis. And then, slower than your slow cousin, compared this to what was written on the envelope. Tanisha M. John Louis. Although the boy at last agreed that these two variations fell within tolerance, the boy still shook his head. No, though, I don't think I can give this to you. You're supposed to show a driver's license. His stupidity flung her forward bodily against the partition. She smacked her palms on the plastic to lend the necessary words their due emphasis. Nigga, this is New York. Ain't nobody out here got no fucking driver's license. <laughs> you better hand me that envelope. Second part. <laughs> to the left of the elevator, the hall continued around the corner, but 6L, on Esther's apartment, was in the cul-de-sac to the right. Stink rushed out as the front door swung in. Weak old kitchen trash, years of cigarettes, old ladies who pissed theyself. Old Esther had caught her heart attack on the bus, so at least there wasn't that. Not the funk of some bloated, mice-nibbled corpse leaking slime. On a corner table inside the door was a huge, nasty, religious mess. Ugly dolls, rat bones, weird trash. If all Satan's blue-black devils had wiped all God's blue-blonde saints, then a gaudy likeness of their brats was painted on the clutter of seven-day glass candles. She went over to take a look. Breathing through some open window, the moment after Ankel followed her in, a breeze slammed the front door shut. 
The sudden breathless dark had him slapping at the walls desperately until he found the lights. She sneered. Come peep this. She was on some real hoodoo shit. No, mommy. He came over reluctantly. This ain't voodoo or santeria ni nada parecido. Your auntie ain't bought none of this at no botanica. Look at that. Yeah, a cross. So what? You don't see nothing weird about it? Though fancy and heavy looking is real silver, it was just cheap ass plastic junk when she thumped a finger against it. Rather than about to die, the face of Jesus looked more like a man nutting. But apart, <laughs> but apart from the crucifix being upside down, she couldn't see what had Angel all freaked out. She shrugged. Angel was superstitious. His grandma had wanted him to go to Miami for some expensive Catholic thing, accepting his saint or some shit like that. But his trifling ass had just bought tracksuits, Jordans, and smoked up the money she left him. Now he touched the bare skin of his neck as if there should have been some beads hanging there, some guardian angel to call on today of all days. Her pretty baby boy is so full of regret. She saw she could fuck with him. There was a Poland spring label ripped off in the middle of all that voodoo mess. She picked it up. You can't drink that, Nisha. It ain't even been open yet. She cracked the seal and twisting the cap to show him to fuck with him. It's clean. It's blessed water, Ankel said. Curse, blessed. I don't know what, but I swear to God, don't drink it, Nisha. Mmm, she sighed, gulping down half the bottle. But so thirsty, though. He got quiet. But she could read these signs from being hugged up with him on the couch so many nights, forcing him to watch the kind of movie she laughed at but turned him into a motherless six-year-old, afraid of the dark. While she was rummaging the apartment, pulling out drawers and dumping worthless old lady trash onto the floor, Ankel followed close, brushing up against her as if on accident. He was scared as shit and wishing he'd change the channel. But no, nigga, this is the show. This is what we're watching. Under the, not under the mattress, not in the dresser. She didn't find a fat stash of Benji's anywhere. Radio bras, holy socks, musty dresses. She sorted high speed through a folder labeled important papers, dropping a blizzard to the ground as her audit turned up nothing but social security and Con Ed stubs. Obituaries clipped from newspapers, yellowing funeral programs, her father's. But the treasure had to be buried here somewhere. Angel came to sit by her on the edge of the coffee table. He jumped to his feet when it teetered up like a seesaw. There. Get that in, she said. They dumped over the coffee table, its old school ebony's and dish of peppermint scattering. Underneath was a trunk, a real pirate ass looking trunk. Now we're talking. No hinges or latches were visible on it, but when Ankel tried to pry up the lid, he fell back on his butt saying, shit's locked up, locked up tight. She said, no it ain't and effortless, effortlessly lifted the lid herself. Folded up inside was a tall, tall man or woman, long dead and withered black and dry as stale raisins, their longest bones broken to fit fetus style in the confines of the chest. Angel screamed all girly and jumped back onto the couch. She rolled her eyes at him. Dead! Now how many times I told you what dead means, she said. Can't do nothing to you, Angel. Stop worrying about it. He started whining, but she ignored him. There were two things in there with the body. It's scanned, cheap feeling, just leather-ish, like a $100 sofa from the ghetto furniture store, and the body weightless and unresisting as piled laundry. 
One was a shotgun that could have come from the Civil War, half made of wood. She set it aside. The other was her baby. A knife, equal in length and width to her own arm, its handle protruding from a rawhide sheath. You know who sidles up and offers what? Change. Not for the better, not for the worst, just a change. But one so huge you can't even dream it from the miserable little spot, miserable little moment you're at now. But don't go expecting wishes granted or that kind of boring shit because transformation belongs to a whole nother category. But oh, baby girl, this could be a wild hot ride. Are you down? Angel slipped off the couch and knelt beside her. He was reaching toward the shotgun but hesitating too, up until she did it, until she pulled out the long knife. No, machete from the leather sheath that flaked apart in her hands like ancient pages from an ancient book. Angel picked up the gun. Oh, fuck yeah. It felt like being at the club. Three four drinks in, every chick in the place hating, every nigga trying to holler. And in your song, come on, the beat drop. She felt loose as a motherfucker. Ooh, Angel. Groaning, she wedged the hill of a hand down between her thighs. You feel that too? Yeah, the nigga was feeling it. She ought to know that look on his face by now, about to bust a really good one. She, she tested the edges of a shet with a fingertip, but found it all the way dull, however sharp it looked. Even pressing down hard against the edge hardly dented the pad of her thumb. Angel, too, reached out wanting to test the edge of that weird machete. But then he sort of thought twice, stopped short, and shied his hand right on back again. Just like that she got it. Understood all the possibilities for black magic murder. Come on, Poppy, she purred, cat malicious. Don't you want to see what kind of edge it got? She nudged him and shed out toward him very recklessly. Would have cut his ass, too, if he hadn't jumped back so quick. You ain't scared, is you? She was getting her hands all wet in somebody's blood today. That was for damn sure. Whoa, Nisha, why you playing, though? Back up with that. Keys rattled in the lock, and the front door swung open. Two dudes in dickies and t-shirts came in talking whatever they do over there in Czechoslovakia or Ukraine. The workers were the right color to come over to New York and get fat business loans or good union, good union jobs right off the boat, buy a house on some tree-lined street, all set up for the good life before their kids even graduated high school. Perhaps for supernatural reasons, they didn't notice his shotgun or a machete. For natural ones, she and Angel weren't invisible exactly, but seemed to the workers' eyes only two vague black and brown shapes where they didn't belong. You miss John Lewis? Boss said you gotta be out of here by five o'clock. The law on his side, one of the Serbians held up some important piece of paper, typed with signatures, etc., or we call the cops. It was instinct. It was thirst. Pivoting, she swung like a Cuban phenom at Bat, who better hit that fucking ball or take his damn ass back to the island. Best believe she had. A red hot knife would have had more trouble with butter. The Polak's astonished trunk separated from his bottom two thirds so easily. Blood and viscera went splashing by the bucketful, but none impossibly hit the ground. A thousand frog tongues lashing out 
to snatch as many bugs from the air, every glob of gore vanished in the twinkling of an eye, slurped up by the thirsty machete. How long had this poor baby lain in that awful, awful chest? Though drinking to the last drop was neither delicious nor easy as that first perfect pull, she kept going and swallowed the man down. The Russian in two pieces desiccated, turning to a spoonfuls full of a spoonfuls worth of blown dust between one breath and the next. What, maybe twenty seconds had passed since the door opened? Ruski number two, quick on the uptake and fast on his feet, had spun around and was booking up the hall. She looked at her hair and jerked her chin toward the runaway. Poppy, I ain't never even shot a gun before. Just pulled a trigger, dumbass. Hoisting it up to his shoulder, he aimed. But what if it ain't loaded? It was, though. <laughs> the discharge, noiseless on earth, made no flash either, resounding instead throughout hell. All the souls screaming in their lakes were startled into a moment of silence. So loud was that report, so bright. A burst watermelon of gore blew out the white back of the running man's t-shirt. He was snatched forward off his feet and several yards through the air by the impact of the demon bullet, which smashed him face down into the checkered tiles with such goofy slapstick violence. She and Ankel turned open mouth to each other, dead. They died laughing grabbing one another and collapsing to the floor. It was that funny how dude had thought he was getting away, but psych. Okay, okay, she said finally, let's get serious. She pointed to the problematic scene in the hallway. Get out there and clean that shit up before somebody come out the apartment. Unlike firing the gun for the first time, she didn't need to break it down to ask her how the devil got his due. He walked up the hall, she with him, and put the thirsty muzzle of the gun down into that sucking wet wound. In no time, the juicy corpse was all bled out, the borshti color of a freshly dead white man depinking into gray. Ankel lifted the gun from the dry pit of torn lavender flesh, shattered pale bone. I don't want no more, he whined, screwing up his face. The sweet part's gone. Shut the fuck up, she said, in zero move for his finicky complaints. Finish it. Angel pooched out his bottom lip like a four-year-old with just the broccoli left on his plate. But he put the muzzle back down in. Soon he was gagging and not faking either. All right, all right, she conceded. Carry the rest back to the apartment. There was no splatter on the floor or walls, no, no more messy, no more mess, only a shrunken, dry thing like the historical Christ if those skinny bones were pulled from a tomb in Sinai today. She she stomped the old body down into the chest, and it burst and crumpled like paper mache, till there was room for Angel to roll the new one on top. Fingerprints? Wipe shit down? Tidy up? Nah, fuck that. The devil got you. He looks after his own. They bounced, Angel following her out to the elevator. So we just kind of slide into the fire sideways, not far, and from there nobody can see us. I get it, Angel said. You always think I'm so stupid, Nisha, but I got it all the same time you did. Well, don't fuck it up, nigga, because we carrying this machete and shotgun right through the streets onto the empty fucking egg. Just newly knighted to this darkest order, they hardly dare more than a step or two into hell, and so their half-assed little cantrip that first night wouldn't have worked at all except in a place like New York, 
where everybody was already trying so hard not to notice strangers. <laughs> Night had come to Brooklyn, but you could still see a half inch of daylight glowing behind Manhattan's fallen constellations. They didn't slink from the building like street dogs after grubbing gruesome alley trash, their heads down, eyes slewing nervously left and right. Oh no, they loped like winter wolves, thin yet, but bellies hanging full of fresh kill and future tooth and scenting nose what all those little lambs gambling on every side. Nay, sweeter than lambs, for creatures even so gentle can yet scent the beast that will eat them, while men and women and children walking home under soft rain don't know to fear the slavering jaws, the click of claws on concrete. Shadow and flame licking in the corners of their eyes, machete and gun in hand, they strutted through the evening rush. When they descended to the subway, nine to fibers were trudging up, and teenagers just out of basketball practice, leaping stairs two at a time. Down in the station, patrolmen to bust the fare droppers and dudes selling swipes, and more patrolmen posted at the terrorist table didn't even blink when two murderers, fresh off the deed, weapons naked in hand, rolled past. Busker on the sacks, you've changed. Nobody tried to bogart. Nobody jostled them on a crowded way back uptown, where you would have swore there was none. Space opened up on the packed train. Couple seats came free. You can pray all day, baby girl, but God won't answer. He ain't thinking about you. Now that other guy, though, he will treat you like a fucking rock star. VIP. Perks. So they get into a lot of trouble with those weapons, and I'll leave it to you all. <laughs> Thank you. That's really good. <laughs> so we will take a break for about 15 minutes. Come on back and hear our second reader and have a drink, please. Start, I just want to remind everyone, there are books here. There are books actually by both authors. Come and buy their books, please, because otherwise they'll have to carry them home. And Simon came from Canada, so you don't want to make him carry his books home, all right? So, and Kai's going to be, after, the, after Simon's reading, Kai's going to be running out the door. So, before he runs out the door, make sure you buy his books, okay? Thank you. Simon Stronsis is the author of five collections of short fiction, including Nothing is Everything, from Undertow Publications 2018, and is editor of the award-winning Aikman's Heirs and Year's Best Weird Fiction, Volume 3. His fiction has appeared in numerous and annual best of anthologies in venues such as Nightmare, Postscripts, and Cemetery Dance, and has been nominated for both the British Fantasy and Shirley Jackson Award. He lives with his wife in Toronto, Canada. So please give Simon a really big welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having this Canadian at your reading series. It's, it's an international crowd. Um, North America. <laughs> <laughs> Canada's a whole different continent. Um, 
I wrote this story for my new collection, uh, Nothing is Everything, which I have copies of here. And if I sell out of the very few I lugged over from Toronto, I do have postcards with a discount coupon. I shouldn't have told you that because now I got to sell these at the discount. It didn't occur to me. Um, but yeah, so you can take a postcard if you want to. Or buy a book and take a postcard. Give it to a friend. Uh, so this story is called Ghost Dogs. It's, uh, it's a novelette. It's not gonna, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm not that fast of a reader. Um, I was inspired by my neighbor's dog keeping me up at night. <laughs> so I thought, stupid dog, what can I write about? So ghost dogs. Anyway, I'll get right to it. <clears throat> who is the sandbag who first called them ghost dogs anyway? I mean, it's not like they're ghosts. And they're probably not like dogs either. They're just things that live deep in the skirts and seem to enjoy keeping me from falling asleep on those hot nights when I already can't stop sweating. Do they all get together in a circle somewhere in the nothing that surrounds Whitby and agree to keep me awake for as long as they can? I'm not sure why, but they've always had it in for me. No one believes me though, even after I tell them the ghost dogs have already tried to get me twice. The last time, I was running home from Jody's place. I never actually saw them, but I knew they were there which is actually why I ran as fast as I could through the stretch that connects White Abbey Court to Lupin Avenue. My feet were numb and my chest felt like my belt was tightened around it and I was crying because of the wind in my eyes and nothing else. The ghost dogs didn't catch me though and when I got home, I used the last of my energy to dash by mama and into my room and do you know what I found? There were about a million brush brambles clinging to the cuffs of my yellow cotton pants. What I'm saying is the name ghost dogs is like one of those brambles. I'm not sure where it came from but it's stuck, and it's not going anywhere. I tried explaining all of this to Jody and Dennis, but they never listened as much as they should. Dennis is too trapped in his head to pay attention, and Jody's too busy trying to get into mine. <coughs> I've hung up with them a lot this summer, mostly because I like getting away from Mama and the chores she wants me to do. She's too fat and lazy and drunk to do them on her own, and if you think I'm being cruel, I'm not. She's the one who calls herself those names whenever she wants me to do something. Just this morning she said, I was too fat and too lazy and drunk to have a girl of my own, so you're going to have to sweep the porch, even if you're too slight and stupid to do it right. Mom's a real good motivator. She can motivate me right out the door. The best way I've found to avoid having to do everything for her is to get on my bicycle and ride as far away as I can. One day, I'm going to ride right out of Whitby and into the skirts, and keep on riding until the sky turns blue to orange. Jody tells me the more orange the sky, the further away I'll be. I don't know if it's true, but I like believing it. And it's not like mom was my real mom anyway. My real mom got sick when I was so young that no one thought I'd remember what she was like. But it's the one thing I can't forget. I can't forget how thin she looked, like a dying branch underneath a sheet. I can't forget the feel of her twig fingers on my face and stroking my hair one last time. That stuff is clear to me. What's not so clear is what happened to my dad. He ran off somewhere after my real mom died, crazed with grief, and never came back. When people ask, I tell them the ghost dogs got them, because why not? They don't ask again, which is nice. But the only part that isn't nice is, was being sent to live with my real mom's sister, Selma, who has my mom's face, only doesn't fit her quite right, like it's the wrong size. She makes me call her mama, even though I don't want to. Not that spending time with Jody and Dennis isn't work, too. It's just different work. Mama makes me sweep out the dirt that always comes back, run errands like carrying home our water rations from the station, but it's all easy stuff. Go here, do this, do that. With Jody and Dennis, it's much more complicated. 
It's like one of those love triangles from the old books my real mom left behind when she died. Those few I managed to keep before mama threw them away. Except I don't know how you have a triangle when the sides don't connect. I don't mind Jody because she's my friend. I don't mind Dennis for the same reason. But I don't feel about either of them the way those books talk about. And I know Jody doesn't feel, feel it either because she'd tell me. She can't not tell me. Dennis, on the other hand, he keeps a lot to himself. Even if I already know what he doesn't want me to. Still, when it comes to how he feels about me and Jody, I can never tell. Even though he gets all red and stammery when it comes up. It probably doesn't help that Jody and I can't stop laughing at him when he starts to fumble. I don't care how mad he gets. I don't care how mad he pretends to get. I know he's not angry because he starts smiling with those chiseled teeth. You can't be mad and smile at the same time. It's a known fact. I'm sure I'd rather than another one of my real mom's old books. But even if I didn't, I still bet it's true. Still, it's weird that Jody's mom doesn't want her near me or Dennis. With Dennis, I, it kind of makes sense, I guess, seeing as he's a boy, and even though he's the least boy-like boy I've ever met, Jody's mom still doesn't trust him. But me? Why wouldn't she want her Jody near me? I know there are stories floating around about most of, but most of them aren't true. It's all just rumors and gossip, and Jody knows that, which means her mom should too. But sometimes, grown-ups have a narrow mind when it comes to that kind of talk, and they'd rather believe the wrong stuff than accept the right stuff. <coughs> it's not like anybody has any proof of their suspicions, but if you can't change people's minds, if they don't want them changed. So Jody's mom keeps on worrying about Dennis and me and hating us, and Jody keeps on ignoring her and sneaking out of the house anyway whenever we ask her to. It's not a great system, but we make it work. That's why it's weird that Dennis, quiet Dennis, who would be afraid of his own shadow if the sun ever gave us a break for a minute, is the one who decides he wants to see a ghost dog. Aren't you even curious, he asks, while the three of us lie on the edge of what's left of Massey Creek, our bikes in a heap, Jody's feet languidly towing through the damp silt. I'm still tired from the night before, so tired I can't keep hearing ghost dogs howls whenever no one else can. Not me, I say. My luck's going to run out if I get chased again, and I'm surprised you're curious, considering. Yeah, I don't want to go either, Jody says, though it's hard to be sure if that's what she wants or if she's just agreeing with me. Besides, my mom wouldn't like it. Oh, you should totally go then, I say, but I don't think she appreciates my joke. Neither of you ever wanted to see one? Dennis seems to shrink. His first idea, and we stomp all over it. I get the feeling it's about more than curiosity. It's about his mom, and it's dangerous. I bet they aren't even that big. I sit up. Big as a horse at least, I say. No way. The shrinking stops. Jody nods, smiling. You're right. And, there's, and those are just the pups. A grown ghost dog is more like an elephant. Then I add, yeah, like a whole herd of elephants. And when they run, you can feel the ground shaking like an earthquake. Like this. I leap to my feet and stomp the packed ground as hard as I can. Trails of dirt rattle down into the empty creek. Only, you know where it's coming from because you can hear them coming after you. It'll shake your teeth out. Dennis folds his arms, turns away. You guys aren't funny. Yes, we are, Jody says, and then we both fall on our backs and cackle. Dennis waits patiently until we're finished laughing at how funny we are. I could actually keep going, but I haven't seen a cloud in days, and it's too hot to be rolling around in the dirt for no good reason. Everybody's afraid of fire in Whitby. We use it for cooking when we have to, and there's a furnace two blocks away for smithing, but it's a dangerous thing to keep around. Mama's always warning me to stay away from it, and at school, tall, bald Mr. McIvory taught us what to do if we see one, but most of the other kids stopped listening years ago. They say it's because it's so hot most of the time, it feels like everything's on fire anyway. 
But I think they're too busy worrying about the ghost dogs to worry about fires. They only have so much worry in them to go around. I guess that's because we hear the ghost dogs howling all the time and people keep going missing. When it comes to fire, the really dangerous kind, most of the kids have never even seen it. I have, but only once. It's, but, it was, but at least it was a big one, the Parkway Fire. It started at an old house that wasn't causing anybody any trouble, so no one really knows how it happened. Mama thinks it was kids, but she always thinks that about everything that goes wrong. I remember seeing the column of black smoke spewing into the sky and being mesmerized. I was with Jody near the school, so the two of us hopped on our old bikes to get a better look at what was going on. There were more people there than I'd ever seen before, women and men of all sizes working their shovels, digging a wide moat around the house as fast as they could. No one stopped to look at us. No one cared. All they cared about was digging. That's the only way to stop a fire, Mr. McGarvey told us later. You've got to isolate it, make sure the damage can't spread. Sometimes they'll even knock down good houses that people are living in if it means keeping a fire separated. He also said that they used to use water to put out fires like that back in the old days, which still makes me laugh. Why would anyone waste water pouring it on a house? It's this, it's, sorry. Why would, anyone, why would anyone waste water pouring it on a house? It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It would make more sense, I think, to take all the sand they dig up from their moats and pour it over the house. But you can't do, but I can't figure out how you throw it far enough or what you do with the half-buried house after. At least when a fire burns something down, you can shovel away the ashes and start again. There's something cleaner about that. But I still remember that parkway fire, that beautiful hypnotizing fire. As that old house burned, the air buckled and rushed and sounded like whispers that I, I thought I could make something out of if I tried real hard. But I couldn't. Neither could Jody. Though I kind of suspect she didn't really try. She probably just told me what I wanted to hear. But that's okay. I don't blame her. I shouldn't have been so close to the fire anyhow. Mama would not have liked it. I find I can't stop thinking about what Dennis said, about seeing a ghost out. The idea doesn't scare me like it should, like it scares everyone else. I guess I never really thought about it before. That's all I uh, brought from you to read. and buy his collection and you'll read the rest of it uh, and please you know have some more drinks and hang out and uh, you know if, if you buy their story their books what what are you putting in they will sign the books to you so come on and get them and see you next month you have been listening to the fantastic fiction at KGB podcast recorded live at the KGB bar I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.